Today we're finishing our series looking for a leader and uh, we are seeing in a sense not just the end of our series but the end of Saul uh, in his fairly short career uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and uh, I think what we see in, in Saul and in the story today is that sometimes things look great on the surface but they're a disaster underneath. Ben Cousins, a prodigy in the game of AFL. Uh, a phenomenal explosive midfielder, Brownlow medalist, All-Australian six times, premiership captain. On the footy field, he was absolutely unstoppable. But beneath all that skill and power and prowess, Cousins was fired from the West Coast for substance abuse. He was charged with drug possession and since uh, his football glory days has been hospitalised several times for drug-related incidents. Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France seven years in a row from 99 through to 2005. The thing that made his achievement doubly amazing is that he did it after being diagnosed with cancer in 1996. Well, the allegations that he was a drug cheat started in 1999. They were relentless from that point on and he continued to strenuously deny the allegations again and again and again, all the way through until August 2005 where he told a reporter at CNN this. Uh, sorry, this is, uh, this is as he continued to deny the allegations in August 2005. He said, why would I enter into a sport and dope myself and risk my life? That's crazy. I would never do that. No, no way. August 2005. Well, on October 10, 2012, the US Anti-Doping Agency said Armstrong was part of the most sophisticated, professionalised and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. It took him a while, but he finally admitted to doping in an interview to, of all people, Oprah Winfrey in early 2013, perhaps still playing for the crowd. In just one day, he lost seven sponsors reported to be worth over $70 million and eventually he was stripped of all seven of his titles. Sometimes things look great on the surface, but they're an absolute disaster underneath. Well, King Saul was a little bit like Ben Cousins and a little bit like Lance Armstrong in that he looked great on the surface, but he was a disaster underneath. In our story today, this cracks are starting to show and he's being offered a chance by God through Samuel to quit the show, to quit the act, to come clean with God, with Samuel and with God's people. But instead, a bit like Lance Armstrong, he just works all the harder to keep up the show and to keep up appearances. It's almost like this picture of a... I see this picture of a duck uh, in a pond. It's just beautiful, serene, peaceful-looking duck. And you look under the surface, and he's paddling, striving, straining under the surface 
to keep up the act, to keep up appearances. It's interesting, in in, in chapter 16, the next chapter, uh, God says that man looks at outward appearance, but God looks where? God looks at the heart. Well, Saul was very content uh, with that uh, equation. He, He was happy to keep up appearances with the people and happy to ignore the fact that God saw his heart. In Proverbs 29, verse 25 Uh, there's this great nugget of wisdom. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of people will prove to be a snare. And Saul was a slave. He wasn't a slave to God and his view of things. He was a slave to the crowd and their view. And we see him uh, playing for the crowd in this story, uh, which we're going to look at the first half of the story uh, in particular And uh, I want to dive in with you now in verse 3, where God commands Saul to go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. You need to understand that the Amalekites were sworn enemies of God and their determination uh, and their purpose was to wipe out the people of God. Uh, And so God gives him this command uh, in verse 3, but then in verse 9, have a look. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. So the flow of the story is that God gives Samuel a command, uh, Saul a command, sorry. Saul disobeys that command and then God sends Samuel to go and confront Saul with his disobedience. And what I want you to notice as we look at this confrontation between Samuel and Saul is just how much of a master of deception Saul was. He was a master of deception. Uh, On the outside, remember, he was really, really good. He was, in fact, he was good looking. We heard that he was head and shoulders taller than than everyone else. Uh, And he was a mighty warrior and he'd had some success in war. But on the inside, I want you to notice three things about him in the passage. I want you to notice that he was vain and insecure. In verse 12, they say, Saul has gone to Carmel and there he has set up a monument in whose honour? In his own honour. He set up a monument to himself for his success. And then um, if you fast forward, uh, th- this was a vain man and, 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 and he was uh, insecure at the same time. If you fast forward to verse 30 when Samuel has finally pinned him down to admit that uh, he, he hasn't got any excuse anymore, he says, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, oh, yeah, okay, fine, Samuel, God has rejected me. I can deal with that. Can we just go and, like, do a little act together? Like, all right, you know God's rejected me. You know, I know, God knows I'm rejected. Can we just go and do this act where we stand in front of the Israelites and we'll do this worship thing where I make sacrifices and and you make sacrifices? And can we at least, like, pretend that God accepts me? And that you accept me and, that the, and then the people accept me. And, and Samuel's like, okay, let's do that. 
Do, do, you, see what he, do you see what he's doing there? He's, he, he's, he's a slave to the fear of man. He's playing for the crowd. Sure, God rejects me. I can handle that. Never mind that. I can cope with that. Just as long as the people accept me. Wow. Vain, insecure, and totally warped priorities. But in verse 24, he was driven by fear. After he offers all these excuses for for what happened and why and what was going on, he finally admits what was going on in verse 24. He tells us why he did it, why he disobeyed. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. Do you see? It's the fear of man. He he was afraid of losing their favour. Also, I want you to notice about Saul that he was insanely jealous underneath the surface. He was a jealous man. This is, comes later on in the, uh, in the story of Saul uh, in his interactions with David. Saul was so jealous of David that he tried to kill David. Do you know how many times? Not once, not twice, not three times. If you read the story, he tried to kill David six times in the story. Because he was jealous that David was God's anointed. So underneath the surface, Saul was vain and insecure. He was filled with fear about the crowd. And he was jealous all underneath the surface. But he was also a master of deception. He was able to deceive himself and others and he uses all kinds of tactics when Samuel a God through Samuel tries to put his finger and give him an opportunity to come clean he's a master of deception do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve were caught having disobeyed God back in the garden and God says did you eat from the fruit I told you not to eat and they do all kinds of ducking and weaving, you know, better than Muhammad Ali. They're just, they're, they're quick and they're able to, to duck and weave and avoid being called to account and coming clean before God. Well, we see Saul doing even better than they did in the garden uh, in the next few verses. And so I want to show you five of his moves that he uh, is able to employ when, trying, when, when being called to account uh, for what he's doing and how much of a master of deception he was. The first tactic he uses is spiritualizing. Um, By verse 13, um, we all know Saul is guilty. God has told Samuel that he's guilty. The whole reason Samuel has come to Saul is to say, why have you disobeyed? He's guilty. But look at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. Samuel's a spiritual guy. And, uh, and so Saul thinks he can distract him, I reckon, from the real issue. Saul knows he's guilty, Samuel knows he's guilty, but we have this sort of Christianese spiritual language. Uh, the Lord bless you. That's a very spiritual greeting, isn't it? For, especially for a guilty man who's just directly disobeyed God, who the prophet of God is coming to, to rebuke and call to account. How much of our spiritual talk is just a cover for what's really going on. I mean, it's not hard to distract. It's not hard to spiritualize. It's not hard to uh, distract people with uh, the finer points of theology or or some point uh, to divert attention away from what's really going on under the surface. Well, I think his first tactic is spiritualizing. 
Uh, But then he moves on to his next ploy, which is lying. After he says, the Lord bless you in verse 13, he says just blatantly, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Just says it straight, a flat out lie. Although he's kind of telling the truth. He, He did carry out most of the Lord's instructions. I mean... You know, the best lies are 99% true and only 1% false. I mean, he'd gone most of the way, hadn't he? I mean, those are the best kinds of lies. 99% true. He's lying, just barefaced lie to Samuel. Thirdly, I want you to notice him blaming, not taking responsibility. As Samuel begins to see through Saul's excuses in verse 14, Saul resorts to blaming in verse 15 and elsewhere as well. Look at verse 15. He says, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. And so now it's the soldiers' fault. So, you know, by this stage, a rookie in deception would be like, all right, I give up, I'll come clean. But no, Saul is a master of deception and he has plenty more tricks in the bag uh, to use on Samuel. And of course, by this stage, there's too much at stake because now not only would he be caught sinning against God, but now he'd be caught trying to cover it up. And so there's no turning back at this point. We've got to keep on going. So the third tactic is blaming. But now we move on to the fourth one uh, he uses, which is rationalising. Now, let me give you some dictionary definitions of of rationalizing. Uh, One definition goes like this. Rationalizing is a defense mechanism by which your true motivation is concealed. It's a defense mechanism by which your true motivation is revealed. Another definition goes like this. It's to ascribe to one's acts or opinions, to, to ascribe one's acts or opinions to causes that superficially seem reasonable but actually they're unrelated to the true causes. So let me show you. In the second half of verse 15, Saul says uh, about the soldiers, they spared the best of the sheep and, and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. In other words, Saul's saying to Samuel, the reason the soldiers spared the the sheep and cattle was to do the most spiritual and the most God-honoring and the most noble action in the universe. This is to worship God. Samuel, are you questioning the worship of God and the offering of sacrifices to God? Shame on you for questioning such high motives and such spiritual things. I heard something recently that that kind of blew my mind and and, um, I I want you to ponder this week. I heard someone say that that the unique thing about Christianity is, is not that we repent of the bad things that we do. The unique thing about Christianity is that we repent of the good things that we do for bad reasons. Making sacrifices to God is a good thing, but it's been done disobediently and for bad reasons. So the unique thing about Christianity is not that we repent of the bad things we do. Yeah, of course we do that. Everybody does that. The unique thing about Christianity is that we repent of the good things that we do for bad reasons. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, why else was the Lord Jesus so harsh on the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Why else? They were doing good things, but they were doing it with a wicked heart. 
This is why it says in Isaiah 64 verse 6 that all our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. Friends, the unique thing about Christianity is not that we repent of the bad things that we do. It's that we repent of the good things that we do for bad reasons. And so what Saul is doing here would be like if I were to tell you that the only reason I went into ministry is out of 100% pure devotion to the Lord Jesus and nothing else. And that it had nothing to do with wanting to be popular, with enjoying it when people uh, listen to me, to being well thought of because it makes me look good. Uh, And how dare you question my service of God and, and suggest that I might be doing it out of selfish motives. Are you tracking with me here? The unique thing about Christianity is that we even repent of the good things that we do for bad reasons. And so Paul's, uh, sorry, Saul's fourth tactic is rationalizing, trying to say that there's good motives and it's actually doing a good thing. Well, the final one is distancing. In verse 15, Saul says, They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Then again in verse 21, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. In other words, he's your God, not my God. This was your idea, not my idea. You're the spiritual guy. This is your problem. It's not my problem. He's distancing himself from God and God's people. So there you go. He was a master of deception. And he'd, he'd gotten, gotten to it so well that he'd, he'd managed to deceive himself. In fact, I was just watching a show last night about the lie detector test and how they don't use it for, for evidence in court anymore because um, the people who take them, they um, believe their own lies so they're able to pass the, the lie detector tests because they believe their own deception and lies and so they can get away with it as if it's truth. Well, <laughs> that's, this is Saul. But you know what? This is me. This is all of us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. And you know what? The better the act is, the better a cover you have for your sinful motives. The more holy and righteous the thing is, the better alibi you have, the better rationalization you have. Again, it's the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Who can question people doing such good things? Larry Crabb says that terror grips us when we begin to sense how badly we want to be liked, like Saul, respected, appreciated. How jealous we are of others who are more liked than we are, or at least more noticed. Rather than following the path of desire to its source, which is God, we feel too ashamed and hide our desires from view, even from our own view. Saul is trapped in this terrible game of deception. If only Saul knew what David knew. You see, Saul came to God with his sacrifices, with his righteousness. But David came to God with his sin. Saul came with his sacrifices. And later on in the story, David came with his sin. in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, uh, it describes Saul perfectly. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
And then 1 John verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. But David, who's the next character we see in the story, he learnt verse 9 of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's amazing when you compare Saul with David and you compare Saul's sin in this verse with David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Can you remember what David did? Can you remember what David did after he was on his throne? He was looking down, saw a hot girl on, on, the, on the roof and she was like, I'll take her, thank you very much. She was another man's wife. He basically devoured her, took her and then, and then, he, had to, then he had to cover it up, right? And so what did he do? He arranged for her, her husband, Uriah. And he had all this like, oh, I'll come back, I'll give you some food, have some wine, have some more wine, have some more wine. And, 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 and he was like trying to uh, incriminate him, it didn't work, so he sent him out to the front line of battle and had him killed. I mean, compare all that, adultery and murder, with Saul, just leaving out the bit of what God said in destroying all of the Amalekites, right? Which one's more... Which one would you say humanly is, is, is more uh, evil and destructive a sin? And yet, who was accepted before God and who was rejected before God? Well, it's because Saul came with his sacrifice and David came with his sin. So after David was finally caught out, God graciously rebuked him through the prophet Nathan. David wrote Psalm 51 verse 17 and he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David came with his sin. Lord, I did it. It's filthy. It's ugly. It's abhorrent. And he confessed it to him because that's the sacrifice that God accepts, which is our sin. He won't despise that. But what does he despise? He despises false worship. Lies and deception, games, cover-ups, and that's exactly what Saul brought. His filthy rags, righteous acts as a cover for, for his sin. But what does he delight in? He delights in when we come and go, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Can you remember what Adam and Eve did? Remember how they sewed up their, after they came up with all their excuses and their ducking and weaving? Do you remember, do you remember what they did? They sewed these fig leaves together, like these pathetic fig leaves to cover up their shame and their failure and their, their nakedness because they didn't want it to be exposed. So they sewed all these fig leaves together to make themselves acceptable before God. They were working to try and cover up their nakedness. And we, we, do, this, we do the same thing. We, we shore up our own righteousness through our own performance. It might be a religious performance, but it might be that you're a great personality. It might be because you're really smart. It might be whatever it is. We, we work for our own righteousness, and they're just like these fig leaves that just don't do the job. Uh, this happens, there's some illustrations of this in, in the movie Rocky. 
uh, before my time, but the title character's girlfriend asks uh, this boxer why it's so important for him to go the distance in a boxing match. Why do you have to last? Why are you striving so hard to to last the distance in a match? And he says, because then I'll know I'm not a bum. Those are the fig leaves. Those are the fig leaves. I'm I, am, I know that I'm a bum, I know that I'm a failure, I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm working to cover it up and make myself acceptable. It, ha- it, it happens again in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, one of the main characters explains why he works so hard at running the 100-yard dash for the Olympics. He says that when each race begins, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Saul is trying to justify his own existence. He's trying to make himself acceptable through his own fig leaves, to make himself acceptable before God. Which is why that picture of a duck is so appropriate, where it just looks so great above the surface, but underneath the surface there's this frantic, anxious, striving and straining to try and keep it all together because he's trusting in his own works righteousness. But there was only one way for Adam and Eve's nakedness to be covered over. They had to reject their own own fig leaves. They had to take them off and be naked and exposed before God and receive his free gift of what? What did he provide for them? He provided a covering for their sin and for their shame. What was it? It was skins, real clothes that do a real job of covering up the nakedness, not something that they stitched, pathetic work that they stitched together on their own, but something that he provided. And what do you have to do to get animal skins? What has to happen? There has to be a sacrifice, doesn't there? There has to be the shedding of blood. Friends, this is an illustration of what God does for us in Christ. Why else was he naked and stripped bare on the cross? Why else was he mocked? and humiliated and ridiculed on the cross. It's because he was being clothed for Saul. The offer for Saul was, mate, your nakedness, your shame, has been put on the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice on the cross. And what he offers you is free, spotless garments of righteousness, dazzling and bright, so that you can stand before him with a perfect covering for your sin accepted, welcomed, embraced as a free gift of grace, not by works, but by grace through faith, so that no one can boast in their own pathetic fig leaves or their own pathetic righteous acts, as if that is going to be enough to stand before a holy, perfect, all-seeing, righteous God. Friends, that's the offer of God's free gift of grace. So two things we can do in response to this challenging, sobering story of Saul. The first is that we can learn to love God's free gift of grace, to boast only in the cross and his covering of righteousness. There's a quote from this guy uh, uh, in uh, Pete Scazzaro's book, actually, where he says, I love the gospel. Before I really understood it, although I'd been a Christian over 10 years, I hid from my wretchedness. 
my defences. I hid from my broken parts and even the abuse I suffered as a young boy. In fact, I was always hiding, hiding my anger, jealousy, arrogance, conditional love, selfishness, brokenness, mistakes, weaknesses and inadequacies. It's just like King Saul. I was always hiding. He says, now I love knowing that I have nothing left to prove because I'm valued, loved and accepted by Jesus Christ. I can actually be free to be me. I can come out of hiding. I'm free to fail, to share my weaknesses and needs with others, to admit that I too have struggles, to admit I was wrong, please forgive me, to recognize I don't have all the answers and to relax, not thinking I have to take care of everyone else. This is what it looks like to rest in God's free gift of righteousness through Jesus. It's freedom. Secondly, we, we, we need to learn to confess our sins. Martin Luther, in the 95 Theses, he, the first thesis was that all of the Christian life is a continual walk of repentance. All of Christian life is a walk of repentance. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, James 5 verse 16, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. There's a warning from Thomas Watson that goes like this. And this is, this is the sad reality that Saul didn't heed. He says, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. You see the hardness of heart in the Pharisees and the religious leaders. No, I'm righteous. I don't need you. I've got this together. I'm like a 10 out of 10 on the obedience scale. The longer the ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. And Saul just refused to repent. He refused to come clean about what was going on for him. He refused to confess. He had the opportunity and things just get worse and worse and worse. So Larry Crabb encourages us. We must admit to our community, to a spiritual friend or a spiritual director, who we are at our worst. We must tell our stories to someone without consciously leaving out a chapter. Otherwise, we're trusting in our own righteousness and our own performance. And we're like the duck struggling and striving instead of resting in Christ and what he's done for us. A.W. Tozer says something similar. He says, don't call your sins by some other name. If you're jealous, call it jealousy. If you tend to pity yourself and feel that you're not appreciated, call it what it is, self-pity. If you're resentful, admit it. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Instead of covering it up and trying to find something somewhere to hide it under, call it by the right name and get rid of it by the grace of God through his sacrifice. So let me finish with this reflection. I've found a poem and I wish I could go back. It's It's a kind of poem. I wish I could go back in time and I wish I could share it with Saul in that moment where he's doing a Muhammad Ali and ducking and and weaving and trying to keep up the act. I wish I could tell him this. There are many reasons why God shouldn't accept you, love you, or use you. But Saul, don't worry. You're in good company. Abraham was too old. Noah got drunk. Jacob was a liar. Gideon was afraid. 
Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young, and so was Timothy. King David had an affair and was a murderer. Miriam was a gossip. Moses was a murderer, and so was the Apostle Paul. Elijah was suicidal at one point. Jonah ran away from God. The Apostle Peter denied Christ. The Samaritan woman had five husbands. Timothy had an ulcer. John the Baptist ate bugs. And Lazarus was dead. Satan says to you, you're not worthy. Jesus says, I am. Satan looks at us and sees our mistakes. Our Father looks at us and sees us clothed in the dazzling white robes of the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen.